0: We talk about January 6th, like it's in the past, a day in history that we survived. But it's more than that. No, we
1: didn't dodge a bullet. That was a practice run. That was an A-B test, which works, which doesn't. Now we know how to refine the message going forward, right? Insurrections without consequences are just practice runs. That's an excerpt from the trailer for a new podcast series, Will Be Wild about the run-up to, and the aftermath of, the January 6th assault on the U.S. Capitol. It's a deeply reported and at times astonishing series that explores the violent undercurrents that were circulating among far-right circles in the years leading up to the attack. The encouragement those activists got from Donald Trump and the catastrophic failure of law enforcement and intelligence officials to connect the dots and protect the U.S. Congress from a mob hell-bent on trying to overthrow the results of an American presidential election. As we get closer to next month's long-awaited hearings from the January 6th committee, the Will Be Wild podcast offers an alarming preview of what the country may be about to hear. We'll talk to Andrea Bernstein and Ilya Maritz, the hosts of Will Be Wild, on this episode of Skullduggery. I do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. and will, to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. So help me God. So help me God.
0: So
2: help me God. So help me God. So help me God.
1: So help me God. I'm Michael Iskov, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. I'm Dan
3: Clydman, editor in chief of Yahoo News. And I'm Victoria Bassetti, a senior counsel at States United.
1: So every time you think you know everything there is to know about January 6th, or you think you're at least up to date on what's out there, new information comes out there. And this podcast, Will Be Wild, has plenty of it. I mean, you hear from people who were involved in the attacks themselves. You hear from people inside the government who were aware of just how disturbing the intelligence was about what might happen that day and you know once again when you contemplate the enormity of all your mind is kind of blown and this this series is is truly a mind blowing podcast series it is yeah. uh,
2: but, but you know I, Mike it was worse than an intelligence failure in, in some ways it wasn't an intelligence failure it was a it was a willful suppression of intelligence over and over again in this podcast what we learn is that intelligence analysts and experts on extremism um, inside the Department of Homeland Security are gathering the information, see the chatter, are writing reports, want to release the reports, specifically about the threat of election violence before the election and, and running up to, to January 6th. And for political reasons, because they don't want to piss off Trump, because they worry that, you know, one official worries that he won't get confirmed by the Senate um, if they put out this information. They suppress it. They won't let it get out. And the people who do want to release the information or put out these reports get fired or get marginalized or get, you know, sent to Siberia. So I don't know if that's an intelligence failure.
3: Not only is it possibly not just suppression and a failure, but we know that there were people within the Department of Justice and other parts of the administration who were not only suppressing this intelligence, they were actually aiding and abetting Trump's attempts to seize and control power. And there are hints and concerns that it may stretch deeper than we even know.
1: Well- right now we know of the acting assistant attorney general at the civil division who was trying to play that role but it is worth you know remembering that all the seniors, his senior people at the Justice Department, thought no way are they going to get involved in that. And in fact, one of them even used the phrase "pure insanity" in an email uh, in response to what Jeffrey Clark, the aforementioned Assistant Attorney General, was trying to do. So I'm not quite sure. There ch- were probably members of Congress who were well, certainly members of Congress. Yeah, there's no question about that. And look, we're gonna we're gonna see that all that presumably played out in a few weeks when we get these uh, public hearings from the January 6th committee.
2: But the, the other thing that's so mind-blowing about this uh, podcast, and, and I guess in some sense, you know, we sort of knew it, but to hear it all over again and with these really vivid, very human stories about the people who went to Washington on January 6th, you see the very direct connection between Donald Trump's rhetoric and the violent actions that people take, that they were getting their, their, their signals from him. He was activating them with his rhetoric and with the conspiracy theories and the lies that he was propagating about the election. So intelligence failures are one thing, but actually, directing the conspiracy or directing this kind of violence is a whole other thing, and I think that comes across um, over and over again um, in in this podcast.
1: Uh, yeah, it's it's worth you know dwelling on that point a bit at the moment because we. Possibly are going to have a new head of Twitter, Elon Musk. Whether that deal goes through is still unclear. He's now raising some questions about all the, the bots and phony accounts on there that he's discovering might diminish the value of this uh of uh, the social media platform he's trying to uh, buy but he is saying that he intends to to let Donald Trump back on Twitter and it was through Donald Trump's tweets that a lot of these far right extremists were getting their cues
3: tweets plus a, an extremist radio network and a, a variety of other channels so uh, the kind of the, the the toxic combination of the two if, were it to be kind of brought back together under Elon Musk's Twitter is not a pleasant thing to, con- to contemplate.
2: I think there's <laughs> going to be a
3: huge backlash
2: against this if, if Elon Musk, first of all, if he does succeed in taking over Twitter and if he uh, brings back Donald Trump. But, you know, it'll, he'll be taking it private. He won't have to worry about shareholders uh, or, be his company. or Wall Street. It'll be his company. Um, and he might just relish that knowing Elon Musk. Uh,
1: right. But look, there's, there's so much more to the January 6th story. I mean, you know, among the many threads in this podcast is the radicalization among former members, current and former members of the American military and law enforcement, clearly a pretty alarming trend right there. And you see it. They've got, you know, one of a former, an army veteran, a woman who was a a key player on January 6th, um, who's a, you know, prime example of that. Somebody who gets, you know, somebody who signed up to serve their country and um, becomes radicalized and tries to destroy, you know, one of our basic tenets as a democracy.
2: I mean, you know, we covered Al Qaeda uh, and ISIS for so many years and this whole question of radicalization and online radicalization and it seemed, you know, it seemed so foreign. It didn't really seem like something that was likely to happen, at least um, that's this kind of scale in in this country. And now it's hard to see it even, it's hard to see it going away. It just seems to be a permanent fixture of the sort of kind of psychological, cultural, political landscape in this country. And that's a very um, depressing and scary thing to contemplate.
1: Well, we've got two very smart guests on this subject who've made a, uh, a really gripping podcast. will be wild. So let's get to it. <music> We've now got with us Andrea Bernstein and Ilya Maritz, the co hosts of Will Be Wild. Andrea and Ilya, welcome to Skullduggery.
4: Good to it's be great here. Great
0: to be here.
1: So, you guys had a very popular and um, much listened to podcast during the Trump years called Trump Inc., which you did for WNYC in New York, correct? So, what prompted you to pivot from your Trump Inc. explorations to do this saga of January 6th.
0: So, <laughs> yes, Trump yeah. Inc. was a podcast from WNYC and ProPublica about the business of Trump. And it was an open investigation in which we really relied on listeners and citizen journalists and other journalists to sort of help put together the complete picture or as complete a picture as we could make of it, of the president who was profiting from his business while also being president. And we were doing a table read, so that's like a large edit session for our last episode on January 6, 2021, and we were on a Zoom, much like we're on now, and we began seeing these push alerts and tweets about an assault on the Capitol. And... In the days and months and and year and a half since, we realized we actually weren't done with Trump and that we needed to put together the story about how January 6 came to be and how it was not only an event in history, but also the beginning of a political moment in this country. Ilya, do you want to add to that?
4: I mean, for me, it was about changing the way that we were looking at Trump, right? So, like, we spent four years looking at the conflicts of interest around Trump, the ethical morass around Trump, the the incentive structures around a businessman president, right? And when we started looking at January sixth, we realized that that was not the lens, right? What we needed to understand was what was the effect that he had had inside agencies, especially law enforcement and intel, that could have allowed this disaster to unfold as it did? And then what was the effect that his rhetoric was having in the general population, especially people who are vulnerable to extremist thinking? And so when we wrapped up Trump Inc, that's what we started looking at. And what we discovered is that he had had dramatic effects both on the internal workings of government and what was going on with ordinary citizens around the country.
1: And you do a terrific job on all those points, but just one sort of coda to your Trump, Inc. uh, work. You were focused on his business practices and conflicts of interest. What was your reaction after all the work you'd done to uh, learning that Alvin Bragg, the new Manhattan district attorney, has basically uh, scuttled the criminal investigation into Trump's business?
0: So, I mean... (laughs) That case, which was actually not a case, but the investigation, which sort of burst into public view when Trump sued the district attorney to try to prevent uh, records from being released, which went to the U.S. Supreme Court twice and was took so long that there was a changeover in district attorneys. I was actually there for the first court arguments and sort of have tracked it all the way along. And it certainly was a gut punch to see that investigation halted. Now, I should say the district attorney's office insists that they are continuing with the investigation, but Ilya and I have not spoken to a former prosecutor in New York who thinks that that is the case. Everybody thinks that this means that this investigation is over. So it certainly does mean that, for now it looks like, Uh, Trump has managed to slip away again. And this is not the first investigation (laughs) that Ilya and I have covered in the Manhattan District Attorney's Office that Trump has managed to outlast and outlive and outrun. The first one had to do with an investigation into whether there was fraudulent marketing practices at the Trump Soho. And that was one of the very first stories that Ilya and I did very early on in the Trump administration about criminal investigations that did not come to be. So it did seem like this one was quite close. Uh, We now know that the former prosecutors in that case, uh, one of them wrote a resignation letter, which became public in which he said, I believe felonies were committed. So I did not see that coming. And moreover, Ilya and I sat down with the former district attorney, Cy Vance. Was it late December, Ilya? Mid-December? Yeah,
4: it was like two yes. weeks before he was leaving the office. He was still in his office. He still had his desk, showed us around the office, and he projected confidence that this was going to go ahead. He didn't presume to speak for Alvin Bragg, but he was like, you know, our investigation continues. Uh, we're handing it off to the people, the person right. the, the people of New York have elected. It, it um, wasn't only so- a
0: surprise to us. It was also a surprise <laughs> to him. Interesting.
2: Uh, let's dive into uh, the podcast. Will be wild, um, and for the benefit of our listeners, I want you to give them a sense of the story, what you were trying to do here. It's it's really masterful storytelling, and it's character driven. Um, and I'm interested in your process um, and how you identified the characters whose stories you wanted to tell and what you were trying to illuminate through those characters. So just, Ilya, why don't you start and tell us a little bit about the process and what, what you were
4: trying to do. For us, I would say the starting point was actually tuning in to public hearings and watching the public accountability process kind of start up. And you'll remember it began uh, a couple months after the attack. You saw Chris Ray before go before Congress, director of the FBI. You saw defense officials and DHS officials give testimony. And these were really riveting hearings. I I don't think they drew a ton of attention at the time. They drew some news coverage, of course. But the more we watched, the more questions we had. And there were a, a few very specific questions about, you know, why it took the National Guard three hours to arrive at the Capitol after that urgent call for help had gone out. And, you know, the more we began to look, the more we started calling formers from the agencies and we found that people did pick up the phone for us, uh, quite different to how things went during the Trump administration. People wanted to talk, right? It wasn't sending a message out on Signal and hoping that something would ping back. People would just call you back and be like, okay, well, here's, here's what I know or here's what I think. So we kind of let that play out uh, for quite some period of time and just talked to anybody that we could. And we, we, we understood right away that we wanted to better understand law enforcement and intelligence, and those agencies that should have been alert, that should have known that there was a lot of online chatter, that 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 would have been on the receiving end of a lot of that information and, and, and doing the preparation beyond the Capitol Police. It was clear that there were like bad, bad mess ups at the Capitol Police. But the question was, what was the FBI doing? What was DHS doing? And what we started to see, uh, and Andrea can probably talk more about this, but what we started to see is that all of these agencies were led by actings. And it wasn't just that the heads were actings. It was that many of the positions below them had also been vacant for a very, very long time or had been recently filled by Trump lackeys and acolytes and generally unqualified people. So in fact, the agencies that should have been protecting this, the seat of our democracy, the very, the actual capital, were kind of handicapped in ways that I think we had not appreciated when the... Attack, when the attack actually happened. And of course, so, to some stun. extent, that was that was intentional.
0: Oh, it right? was On a, Trump's so part. intentional. It was abs- I mean, I think that, you know, it's sort of like we were in a position to know this. But when we began to dig in, we really began to understand the ways in which Trump had gutted the agencies that would have been exactly in the position to defend against the attack. and and one of the things that was so stunning to me is, you know, I took a really long look at DHS and you know DHS is called not by me, but by people who have worked there as the sort of redheaded stepchild, no offense to redheads of the law enforcement agencies because it's so new. But what you could see is DHS had six secretaries and or acting secretaries while Trump was in office. The shortest was nine days, The longest was a year and seven months. And it was a deliberate, strategy Trump articulated it he liked actings he thought they would be more beholden to him and he just upended the agency on a daily basis uh, mostly with things or many times having to do with the border wall but what happened you know what our reporting showed is by the time we get to January 6 people are so afraid to come forward with warnings about white supremacist violence or neo-nazis or anti-government terrorists that they don't issue a single warning, not one warning prior to January 6.
2: And actually, I mean, this one of the most astonishing nuggets in, I think it was, maybe it was the Homeland episode, but there was a Homeland Security official named Brian Murphy, who I guess had done this report on the emerging threats of white supremacists. He gets into a shouting match with Chad Wolf, who's the acting head of the Department of Homeland Security, who says... It uh, doesn't want him to put out the report because it would be bad for Trump and it would be bad for him, who was still waiting a confirmation. Murphy is eventually pushed out. He's replaced by a Homeland Security lawyer who, days before the election, issues a memo. What, tell us what that memo, what, what that memo said.
0: So the memo says that you can't release any reports of election violence without pre-release review. So this is, you know, sounds very bureaucratic, but from all of our reporting, it was a signal inside the agency, don't do anything, don't say anything. And the memo specifically said there will be consequences. And of course, all of the people in this part of DHS, which is called uh, Intelligence and Analysis, had seen what had happened to the acting se- undersecretary. He'd been sent to you know the virtual equivalent of, of a basement. And so nobody was going to do anything. By that time, and we have this from sort of multiple sources who were at the highest levels of DHS, people were too afraid. They were too afraid to say the president's supporters maybe planning this attack, they were too afraid to do the things that DHS is empowered to do, which is to gather together law enforcement agencies, to tell them they have to act to issue a national security special event, which is a sort of technical sounding term. But when you have the the vice president and you have the Senate and the Congress all together, you can deem that, DHS can, a national security special event, which means that a whole series of things get into place, including putting up protections. So even the most basic of protections, like putting up a non-scalable fence around the Capitol did not happen prior to January 6. And Michael you asked a question about sort of the the character-based approach and you know like you <laughs> we are investigative reporters and we tend to live in the land of documents and court records and freedom of information requests and and we did all of those things. But when we got down to telling this story, we realized we could tell this story in a way that people would understand by following the characters who lived it. And fortunately for us, a number of them were cooperative. And when we say who lived it were, you know, not just the people inside government, but families of insurrectionists, people who were victims. And for us, that was very satisfying because I think all of us feel in talking about January 6th, a sense of frustration because there's such a volume of material and it's hard for people to get their heads around it. And we decided, okay, we're going to stick with the characters and let them tell the story, and you know, hopefully, we have succeeded in creating something that people can get their minds around, which is the you know our key goal. So let me follow up on that because, as
3: Ilya pointed out, a big portion of the podcast is dedicated to the people whose head Trump got inside of, the people who he told stories to, who he drew to Washington D.C., and who he eventually. in some ways, launched at the Capitol itself, you've got a lot of fascinating characters in it. Tell me, Ilya, who's who was your favorite character that you got to interview? Who was uh, who was at the Capitol on January sixth?
4: Well, <laughs> I, I don't like playing favorites, but I'll tell you that somebody who we introduced the listener to right in the second episode is somebody who briefly kind of flashed across the nation's consciousness very early on in that period of arrests in January. And that's Jessica Watkins. And she's an army veteran. She is an oath keeper. And she was in that stack that that went up the side of the Capitol that you can see them sort of- One
1: thing I didn't know, by the way, is that she was transgender.
4: You know, it was reported at the time, but it was in like paragraph 37, which I think, you know, is probably a credit to the to the sensitivity of a lot of our media these days. But we thought it was a significant part of who she was. And when we started to dig into her story, it got more and more interesting because what we see is uh, somebody who graduates high school early so she can join the army, right? So she finishes high school in April, enlists right away, uh, gets sent off to Afghanistan, But things don't go well there. And we don't know exactly why. We weren't able to get her very much in the way of her army papers, just some basic stuff. But she's out after less than three years. And she says it was due to Don't Ask, Don't Tell. At that point, she starts living as Jessica, as a woman, and makes her transition. And one of the really remarkable things is that one of our producers, Alice Wilder, found an online journal that Jessica kept in two thousand, uh, I believe two thousand seven, two thousand eight, two thousand nine. That period. So she's at that point. She's been out of the army a few years, and you realize this is somebody who has really lost a lot of their faith in American military power as a force for good in the world. She she says she's sort of is proud of her service, but but regrets the way it was accomplished. So words to that effect. She's also having wild fantasies about attacking black teenagers in her neighborhood hitting them with frozen paintballs, which she says can be lethal. This is someone who is hurting. This is somebody who in her in her journal actually says that she had tried to kill herself at one point. So then she disappears. At least the trail goes cold for us between 2009 and then about you know 2020 when she pops up again. Now she's living back in Ohio in the state where she grew up, and she is on the streets with her militia that she founded, the Ohio State Regulars. And she's really clearly found a sense of purpose. This is the summer of COVID. It's the summer of the George Floyd protests. And she's out on the streets with her cadre in fatigues, looking like a soldier, carrying guns, saying that they're there to protect private property, right? And we we see them uh, go to Kentucky. They do this in Ohio, possibly other places. I don't know. And when Donald Trump loses the election, they go to the Ohio State Capitol armed And they positioned themselves very similar to National Guard between two rival protests because, of course, Trump had not conceded and never really conceded the election. And so what we see is that people who embraced this sort of military identity, but who were no longer in the military, but styled themselves as soldiers on a continuing basis, whether or not they had ever been soldiers, Jessica Watkins had been, were kind of given a pass By our law enforcement agencies. We kind of looked the other way, not in every instance, but in a lot of instances. And Trump's rhetoric around the racial justice protests really got a lot of people on the streets, including one of the other insurrectionists we follow, Guy Reffitt. So that, I think, in a very significant way, set the stage for, for what happened on the 6th.
2: Since you mentioned Guy Reffitt, can we talk about the, the Reffitt family because I thought they were fascinating, almost like a uh, so so Jackson Reffitt the son turns Guy Reffitt the father in who was there on January 6th. There's a kind of a Shakespearean drama going on inside that family that I thought served as a kind of a metaphor in a way for the country because of the way they were divided over Trump. So talk about that family.
4: Yeah, we we thought the same. We thought this is America in miniature. So just a little brief picture of the family. Uh, the mom and dad are Guy and Nicole. Guy went to the Capitol with a gun, had a confrontation with police on the steps just outside the Senate. He goes home to Texas. And when he gets there, he's increasingly paranoid because the arrests are already happening. And he tells his kids, traitors get shot. <laughs> what he doesn't know is that his son Jackson who's 18 at the time is already in touch with the FBI because he's concerned about his dad and Jackson immediately relays that remark to the FBI and that eventually becomes the basis for one of one of the five counts against him which is witness intimidation so guy reford is uh, at this point he's close to 50 he's a texas oil worker he has this family down in texas and Jackson, who appears in in three episodes and is really kind of one of our strongest characters, you know, is this kid up in his room. He's hearing his dad talk what he would say is cr- kind of crazy talk. And he he decides to tip the FBI. He decides his dad is actually a dangerous man. And what's what's really anguishing and, and and sort of difficult about this family is that his mom and sisters don't see Guy the same way. They see Guy as a protector. They see Guy as somebody who is a braggart and arrogant and talks a big talk, but is actually not dangerous or not dangerous to them and wouldn't be dangerous to others. So they do trust him with a gun at the Capitol.
0: And significantly, I mean, I don't think, I don't know if you said this, but Guy was convicted. He was the first of the January 6 rioters to go to trial uh, and was convicted on all five counts. So, I mean, this is someone that Ilya had been following since... July. And, you know, one of the things that we sort of have these kind of braided stories of the inside and outside, and and Dan, as you say, it's sort of like, without, you had to have both things, you had to have the inside being weakened, and you had to have these people on the outside being activated. And that is what happened on January 6. And, and one of the people that we spoke to, the former assistant secretary for counterterrorism, told us about how she tried out to send out a memo at the beginning of the pandemic, saying that, people were going to be isolated, they were going to be radicalized, and this was going to lead to violence. And it never got past the White House. And you see in Guy Reffitt that that's exactly what his family said, that he was spending a lot of time online and increasingly espousing these radical ideas all through
4: 2020. The one other thing that I want to say about this family just briefly (laughs) is like, I think for Liberals, it's very tempting to be like, oh, Jackson's a hero, and the rest of them are deluded. When you get to know Nicole, Guy's wife, and Sarah, Jackson's older sister, you see that it's really, really complicated. They are very intelligent people. In many ways, they see Guy quite clearly, but they have come to a different conclusion about him for, for their own reasons. So,
1: Just uh, on the Department of Homeland Security part of this, which, you know, I love the third episode. You um, talk about how dysfunctional the entire department had become, even though it was the agency of the United States government that was supposed to alert us to security threats to the country, and it had completely fallen down. But that episode, which is episode three, has my, you know, favorite delicious nugget story in there. And that's the story that Miles Taylor tells about being on the phone listening to Donald Trump, who's obsessed with only one thing at the Department of Homeland Security, and that's stopping illegal immigration at the border. Mark, I think we have that extended clip. It's so delicious. I'd like to just play the whole thing and then ask our guests to talk about it.
0: About a year into Donald Trump's presidency, Miles Taylor was sitting on a long leather couch in his boss's office. At the time, he was deputy chief of staff at the Department of Homeland Security, working under Secretary Kirsten Nielsen. They'd just received an alarming intelligence brief and were discussing what to do when a call came in from the White House. Taylor says Nielsen put Donald Trump on speaker and then muted their side of the call.
2: Which happened many times when the president would call, put him on mute.
0: The president wasn't calling about the alarming intelligence brief, Taylor says. He had an idea, something he wanted to do along the southern border, in addition to building the wall. He wanted to dig a moat.
2: Quite literally, to dig a moat so that illegal immigrants would fall into the moat and then have to climb up through the dirt and then above the wall.
0: A moat, 18 feet deep, as deep as the wall was high.
2: But it got crazier.
0: Once they had the moat. Trump wanted to fill it with lethal reptiles.
2: We're talking about a 2,000-mile-long border, and the president of the United States wants to see if we can get alligators and snakes and put them in a moat at the border so that if a migrant fell in, they would get eaten alive or attacked. And we were like, what the fuck is he even talking about?
4: (laughs) Well... (laughs) Can you believe believe Andrea got Miles Taylor, who is a real, you know... class president kind of guy to say a bad word
1: (laughs) (laughs) well i think trump got him to say that (laughs) the the jaw drops when you hear that and it's just a reminder of what a crazy nut job we had as chief executive of the united states well
0: well, i mean that is exactly the thing is that he was you know Trump would, you know, from multiple sources and so many people, I mean, you know, Miles Taylor is the one on tape, but so many people inside the Department of Homeland Security were like, oh, yes, the moat. Trump wanted pictures. He wanted cost estimates. And it sounds like silly and crazy, but, you know, this is the largest law enforcement agency in the United States. Per its charter, its number one assignment is to prevent domestic terrorism. And day after day after day, the leadership of the Department of Homeland Security during the Trump administration found themselves talking the president down from these ideas. And one of the things that we say in this episode is that there's a direct line from talk of the moat to January 6th to the disabling of this law enforcement agency, which should have been the backstop for everybody else. I mean, You know, the FBI obviously is extremely important and had a lot of work to do here that didn't happen. But the Department of Homeland Security was the sort of overarching agency that could have corralled all the other law enforcement agencies, including the FBI, including the Capitol Police, including the Park Police, and create this sort of backstop. So that when tens of thousands of protesters start marching from the Ellipse to the Capitol... There's a sense of preparation. There's a sense that people knew this might be coming and were prepared for it and could defuse it. And that's what didn't happen.
4: Episode seven of the podcast takes a similar look at the Department of Defense. And we see how the Department of Defense was deeply, deeply rattled and unsettled by specifically the things that were happening in the last six months of that presidency and uh, making it yet another reason that we were not prepared in the way that we probably should have been.
3: Yet all of this kind of raises the interesting point that Trump was so kind of strange and wild and incompetent that perhaps that's the reason January 6th failed, because he wasn't really a good coup planner, as the case may be. And we've heard more than a few people say recently that January 6th was essentially a dress rehearsal for a future coup. Having now interviewed tons of people at DHS and at the FBI, are we prepared for the next attempt?
0: Well, (laughs) a lot of people have expressed concern about that and have said, you know, something to the effect of January 6th was a practice run. And Trump and his administration, his allies, as their administration went on, understood more and more and more and more. Not enough ultimately, to block the transfer of power. I mean, I think one of the things that's so surprising to me is, you know, when we went out and we pitched this podcast, we were like, we want to do this full story of January 6th. And we said, it's the story of an almost coup. And that was kind of gutsy at the time, because a lot of the stuff that we know now, we didn't know then. We didn't know that the pressure that Trump had brought to bear on Mike Pence to to not vote. We didn't understand the, the Eastman memo. And all of the attempts to make alternate slates of electors, we didn't understand what had gone on inside the Justice Department and the pressure and the attempts to fire the acting Attorney General, Jeffrey Rosen, uh, at the 11th hour prior to January 6. So I think that what became clear is Trump was unable to cut through the bur- bureaucracy at the end of the day. He was unable to implement some of the plans that we know he had conceived of. But if he were to be reelected as president, presumably, he would now know how to remove those impediments.
4: You know, and, and one of the things he said recently at a rally was that if he's elected, if he runs and is elected again, he wants to make all executive branch employees fireable by the president of the United States. And that really reminded me of this 11th hour effort in the first Trump presidency to change, I think, what was called Schedule F. This had to do with the rules about who, about like civil service workers and whether somebody can be political and and what role their beliefs play. And to me, that's the frightening thing is that this nonpartisan civil service that's sort of built around competency, I think by his final year, Trump figured out that that was the thing that was stopping him. And I think if he is reelected, he has told us that's going to be the first thing to go.
3: Let me also just follow up because your episode Homeland really deals with the reluctance of the Department of Homeland Security and other law enforcement agencies to grapple with white supremacy as a problem and domestic terrorism as a problem within the United States. We know that they didn't do it leading up to January 6th. Are you confident? Do you feel like they've begun to grapple with it in the wake of January 6th?
0: They meaning the Department of Homeland Security?
3: And the FBI? Well,
0: um, so there have definitely been attempts made. I mean, one of the things that the Biden administration has done is issued something called an end task, which is basically a warning to law enforcement agencies about the potential for violence, particularly in relation in many of these warnings to white supremacists. And Biden has issued four of them. In the last year of the Trump administration, there were none. So there is reason to believe that the officials who you know came in with President Biden are sort of taking the threat seriously and doing the kinds of things the Department of Homeland Security should do. That said, the radicalization, which we spend so much talking about, is still going on.
2: That's what I wanted to actually follow up on, because uh, that's a really important theme in this podcast. And ultimately, um, if you don't deal with that problem, there's so many vulnerable people out there. And the, the sort of very poignant example in your podcast is Danny Rodriguez, this young man from, from L.A. Um, who was looking, searching for a, a place in the world and fell victim in some ways to uh, to this kind of brainwashing. Um, And it's so the the parallels to what was going on with with Al Qaeda and later ISIS, and the people who are doing the radicalizing. I mean, you know, it's it's Alex Jones, in some ways is is similar to an Anwar al-Awlaki. So talk about Danny Rodriguez a little bit and what you learned about him.
4: I just want to say before we do, like it's in the bloodstream now. It's like fully, fully, fully in the bloodstream. It's in Congress. In Marjorie Taylor Greene and Paul Gosar and many members of Congress who espouse conspiracy theories and and the Q point of view. Um, so, I, so, I, so I just think like the Biden administration is clearly taking this stuff really seriously, but I don't think they've necessarily shown really out-of-the-box thinking that's going to address the, the magnitude of the problem, because I don't know that anybody can actually figure out what to do about it. And if Danny Rodriguez, that's Andrea's episode, she can say more about it. But I just want to say, to me, that tape, right? So we got the tape of his interrogation by the FBI. It's like three hours long, and you hear two men in a room facing their perp and taking you know different tries at him to try to get him to admit what he did, which was assault a cop. Uh, what he allegedly did, which is assault a cop at the Capitol, and it's just so poignant because you hear the guy crumble and it, eventually it just sort of call himself pathetic. And I kind of think if you just ran that tape on cable news every night instead of what they're playing on cable news, maybe people would get a different view of what's going on in our country.
0: Well, I think that that's the problem, and I think that I mean the obviously Alex Jones has been going for a long time. The idea that the election was stolen was something that, you know, Trump, with the encouragement of his allies and his allies in uh, right wing media and sometimes more mainstream media, kept fanning this false idea that the election was stolen. So there were two months between the election and January 6th. There have been 16 months since where Trump has continued to say the same things to an audience that really believes it. And the polls have been absolutely unmoving in terms of the number of Republicans that feel that Biden wasn't legitimately elected president. One of the alarming trends is that an increasing number of Americans think violence is an OK way to bring around change. And all of this is constantly being fed by Trump. And, and what we saw in the story of Danny Rodriguez was, you know, this kind of, you know, Guy who was kind of on the margins of society. He was homeless for a while. He was in and out of a gang. He'd been, you know, arrested for sort of various low-level level drug offenses. And he was trying to find something. And the thing that he found was the Trump campaign. And when he started hearing about Stop the Steal, he felt that it was his patriotic duty to go to Washington. So like Guy Reffitt, like Jessica Watkins, he was somebody who'd gone out to protest in the summer of 2020, to, as he saw it, put himself between Black Lives Matter protesters and the police. He was backing the blue as he saw it. And then he finds himself on January 6th as somebody who comes into this extremely rough confrontation with Capitol, uh, with Metropolitan Police Officer Mike Fanone, who was tased, who suffered a heart attack, who suffered traumatic brain injury as a result of that confrontation, who was dragged out into the crowd. Many people saw it in real time or not long after on Twitter. It was one of the most brutal, brutal attacks. And this was from somebody who, in his own words, listened to Trump and did it because Trump told him to. And he is very, very clear on that. Now, his case is, has pleaded not guilty, uh, his case has not gone to trial, but what is so extraordinary in this case is that there is this videotaped confession, which is now part of the public record, which, you know, one of the fortunate things about having a podcast is that we had the time to really allow him to speak for himself and not just, you know, use little bits of this, but to really tell the story as well as Officer Mike Fanone's story about how they got there that day and how they saw themselves and how... On January 6th, they sort of, you know, the police officer finds himself confronted by the guy who was supposed to be defending the police officer. And that's how twisted the world was on January 6th.
1: So in another few weeks, we're going to have the long-awaited January 6th committee hearings on the events of that day. It strikes me that at least in the short term, the public verdict or takeaway of the events on the events of January 6th is going to be very much shaped by how those hearings go and how they're received by the public. What are you guys expecting? What do you still want to know or learn from these hearings? And If they called you up right now and say, hey, you just did this podcast, what do you think we should do in these hearings? What would you recommend?
0: Well, I mean, I think that one of the things that we know they're really circling in on because of the materials that have been released so far is what was exactly the TikTok inside the White House? I mean, one of the things that I would like more insight into, and I think that they're asking about based on the sort of uh, depositions and bits and pieces that have been released through court records is what was Trump's state of mind that day? Was he freaked out? Was he happy when he sent his tweet out in the evening that said, remember this day forever? Was he still thinking about was there a way to block the transfer of power? Did he act on that? I think these are things that we don't, no, yet. I also would make a plea that we really not forget some of the things that I think were big questions earlier on, which is what happened inside the agencies? What actually happened inside the FBI? were What information did they have? Who knew what when? Who told anybody things?
4: This is really my big one. I mean, if we remember back to like last spring, there was all this talk about the Norfolk SIR, the situational information report. This is the one like concrete bulletin that we know about that came out of an FBI field office. And it said, hey, people are uh, talking about going to Congress tomorrow and like doing some damage. And, you know, there was like a moment of heat around that. And and Chris Ray, the director of the FBI, took some questions, and then it just kind of dissolved. And you can see that the political incentives are not really aligned right now for a thorough exploration Of the FBI doesn't really advantage either party at this moment, so they may not see it as in being in their interest. But I really hope that they will. And Mm -hmm. you you know, the FBI, DHS is the biggest, but the FBI is the premier, and it has the powers that nobody else has, right? And what we saw with Trump is he fired one FBI director, then he fired his successor, James Comey and Andy McCabe. He hounded out an FBI agent who he didn't like, Pete Struck. And, and then Chris Ray, the director, found a way to stay there. And Chris Ray actually stayed in place for a long time. People forget, but he was sworn in right before Charlottesville. So that's the first year of the Trump presidency. I want to understand what he had to do to keep that job, what kind of compromises he might have had to make, because you know that the same pressures that were bearing down on other parts of the government were bearing down on him. And another tidbit that we didn't really get to explore in the podcast, but that was on my mind very much, is uh, right after the attack, Senator Mark Warner of Virginia was talking about how he'd been in touch with the FBI that week, several times asking the deputy director, do you guys have everything you need? It looks like the 6th is going to be, you know, Wild. <laughs> kind of a, a, he- a hectic day, right? And the FBI assured him that that was the case. Well, obviously, it wasn't. So where is that kind of examination going to come from?
1: I think you make a smart point that it's not really in the political interests of the, of the committee at this point to go after the FBI. I mean, the, you know, the way they are structuring this is it's we have these lawless extremists MAGA folks who are opposed to law enforcement, who are fighting law enforcement. So I'll be surprised if they really want to give the FBI or even the Capitol Police as hard a time as I think some might think they should.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think those are some early questions that are, you know, going to unfortunately be unanswered, at least for now. I mean, I also think there've been so many intriguing hints about communications between the oath keepers and people around Trump. It may we're in this sort of bind now because they're the those people are indicted for seditious conspiracy. Many of the oath keepers. It's a Justice department case. It might limit what the January sixth committee can do. On the other hand, if the Justice Department has evidence about people that they may have been communicating with, cutouts between the radical groups in the White House, they may not release that. So we may be in this sort but of Andrea, information. Don't, don't void. you
1: think don't you think we would have seen them by now? I mean, they've had access to the devices of these oath keepers for quite some time. They would do that, you know, in preparation for the from indictment. Who? From the, you the know, Justice Department? From the they would have put it in the indictment, uh, in the seditious conspiracy indictment. It, they didn't have to identify perhaps who they were in communication with, but what they would have said, you know, Stuart Rhodes, you know, Oathkit ke- was emailing with you know, individual one at the White House or the part. I mean, it's the kind of stuff yes. that that would support a seditious conspiracy charge. And if they had it, I think they would have used it.
0: And that may be why we don't know, because maybe they don't have it to the point of naming it in a in a document in a criminal indictment. Uh, but maybe there's information that could come to light that the Select Committee might have, and that I think is you know one of the sort of needles that they're really going to have to thread. They don't want to blow up the indictments. But at the same time, this may be the last chance to get bits and pieces like that on the record. I don't know the answer. I don't know if they were in touch or who they were in touch with. All we have is that one document that was released recently that said that Stuart Rhodes on the night of January 6th tried to get somebody that he knew to put him directly in touch with then-President Trump and that the that intermediary refused. We don't know who that person is. So that is the kind of question that I have, and that's the kind of thing that might be in this sort of limbo between the two
4: investigations. Whether these hearings are successful or not, the selectivity has been really successful at getting records and documents and information, and they have the opportunity to put a lot of that on the record. And that's going to be valuable for yeah. a long, long time. Whether or not they can control the po- conversation or sway public opinion, I, I, I'm pretty doubtful that they can, to be quite honest, even for like a well-staged managed production. But on the other hand, Ivanka Trump spoke to them, right? So that tells me that they are being effective.
1: It'll be interesting to see what she actually said. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yes, I, one always has to watch carefully. I mean, the other question that I have that was mentioned on one of your recent episodes, which which is, what was the Secret Service doing and what did they know? And I found it quite interesting that Carol Lennig, who probably knows more about the Secret Service than anybody in the country, uh, not in the Secret Service, that seemed at the top of her mind as well. What What are we going to learn about them, if anything, during the course of these hearings? So... You know, we're really interested in the sort of mechanisms of government. I am pleasantly surprised by how much this investigation has already shaken out into the public record. It could have been nothing if there was, in fact, a nonpartisan commission, as there was an initial attempt to do. We might have learned less than we learned from this select committee, where everybody on the select committee, all seven Democrats and two Republicans, seemed to be be of a mind about getting to the bottom of it. And that is a really unusual historical moment and an opportunity for us to really learn some things. And I hope we do.
1: Well, let me uh, close out with sort of uh, a counter to the uh, question I asked you initially about Alvin Bragg not pursuing a an indictment of Trump on his business practices. The big question a lot of people are asking is, is Merrick Garland and the Justice Department going to bring criminal charges uh, against Trump and his senior Confederates as a result of January 6th? We don't see much sign of that to date. What is your respective takes on that?
0: I also don't see much sign of that. Um, (laughs) It's certainly possible that we don't know. I think given the level of sort of, you know, beat reporter scrutiny, that seems unlikely. I think that this is an administration that really, I mean, they very consciously don't want to do what Trump did, which was use the Justice Department for political ends. And we see, we keep seeing how Trump did that in ways that are like, you know, Uh, were shocking at the time. And now we're not even shocked when we realize the things that he did. So I think that, you know, they're sort of trying to lead by example. And it's hard to say, like, what is the best thing to do in that situation?
2: I would say it it may be that it is true, 100% true, that what, that Trump's rhetoric, what he said, the conspiracy theories about the election, the suitcases, uh, which people should listen to that part of your podcast, led to the violence on January 6th our legal system may not be able to vindicate that point um and so which is why getting it on the record and and the committee hearings are are so important so there's a there's a gap between what we may know to be true and what can be proven in a court of law and i think that's where we are yeah. and i my guess that's where we're going to be
4: you know i mean not that this is where we normally look with these questions but like you know Benjamin Netanyahu's criminal charges are going ahead. Uh, Sarkozy in France. It does happen in other democracies. It's just so unthinkable in our country until you make it. Until now.
0: I mean, I've been asked so many times. You know, I wrote a wrote a book about Trump, and he just managed to sort of skate past every you know possibility of criminal investigation. And he did all these things. He would court FBI agents. He would take them to the 21 Club in New York, he would take them to play golf, he would take the US attorney out for lunch. And he just is someone who managed time and time and time again to put himself in a position where prosecutors wouldn't even ask questions. And people always say, is he going to be indicted? And obviously, it's an unknowable answer. And, you know, my feeling about that is that's not anything that any of us can control. But what we can control is getting it on the record. And that is so important, and it's so important in this moment, and it is meaningful. And I do encourage people who are listening to this to think about that. The meaning of telling a story is also powerful.
1: Well, I would second that point and encourage all our listeners to listen to this terrific podcast, Will Be Wild. Uh, You can get it wherever you get your podcasts and listen to the uh, great reporting that Andrea and Ilya have done. Guys, thanks for joining us.
0: A great honor to be on with all of you. Thank you.
4: Thank you so much, guys.